morning, everyone. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse 10, uh, we find these words. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And I think that is really the theme of the passage that we are going to look at this morning. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Uh, We're in the third uh, week of a series on the events of the birth of Christ and the people who got an opportunity to experience those things. If you are here two weeks ago, you know that we started in the book of Luke. Uh, chapter 1, by introducing ourselves to a person named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was an elderly, barren woman who impossibly became pregnant with a child who uh, his name would be John. He would be John the Baptist. And that was two weeks ago. Last week, we were introduced to Elizabeth's cousin, Her name uh, was Mary, and she was a young virgin woman who, again, impossibly would become pregnant with a baby, too. And his name was Jesus. Now, today, what we find in this passage is that the two of their stories, which have been separate up to this point, intersect. And we find that Mary's response to the news of the angel Gabriel that she would be having a child is to pack her bags and take a trip to visit her cousin Elizabeth. This was uh, no small uh, event. It was about 50 to 75 miles away. And yet she made it anyways. She showed up at uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, and and her house. And and you just imagine that she knocked on the door, excited to share this good news. And Zechariah, the priest, opened the door. And if you remember, he was made mute by the angel. And so he couldn't talk to her. And he probably charaded for her to come in and pointed her over to Elizabeth. And we're told that as soon as the two of them met, something wonderful. Wonderful happened, and it, and it might be one of the most tender and beautiful things that's ever recorded in Scripture. At least one of them. There are many, and that is that the little unborn child in Elizabeth's womb, John, sensed the presence of the unborn child in Mary's womb, Jesus, and little baby John just starts leaping for joy. He starts doing cartwheels in Elizabeth's womb in celebration of the fact that the Messiah is here and he's come. And John would go on to do that for the rest of his life. What an incredible thing to have witnessed. Well, Elizabeth, we're told, filled with the Spirit, explains why it is that John is weeping, leaping, excuse me, not weeping, leaping in her womb. She says to Mary, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What a wonderful reunion this was. For Mary and for Elizabeth. Now, Mary's response to these words of Elizabeth, which must have been overwhelming on their own, is to share with Elizabeth a song that she has written. Now, it's possible that she had written this song uh, during that journey that she took, those 50 to 75 miles from her home to Elizabeth's home. 
But the song is known uh, today as the Magnificat. And it's a word that stems from the Latin word, which means magnifies, which is taken from the very first line in Mary's song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So what does it mean to magnify the Lord? Let's think about that for just a second. Generally, there are are two ways to magnify something today. In fact, if you wanted to magnify something, chances are you would use one of two different tools. You would either use a microscope or you would use a telescope. Now, if you were to use a microscope to magnify something, what you would be doing is you would be taking something that's very small and you would make it appear to be very big. But... If you were using a telescope, then you would be taking something that was already incredibly big and and trying to experience it more clearly so that you can see its true size and scope and majesty and reality. And obviously what Mary has in mind here is more the idea of a telescope than a microscope. She's not trying to take a God who is small and make him look bigger. What she's trying to do through her song is to display how big God is and to show him for all of his majesty and and, and power and might. And so Mary's song is basically like an Old Testament psalm of praise. And it's all really centered around one theme, and that theme is humility. It's all about God's love and his concern and his mercy for people who humble themselves before him. And the song breaks down into four different sections. And this will generally just be my outline for this morning. Mary does four things through this song. First of all, she praises God for all that he's done in her life in spite of what a lowly person she considers herself to be. Then she praises God that his mercy is available for anyone else who would fear him. Anyone else who would consider themselves to be lowly like her. Then Mary praises God for what he is going to do in all the world in demoting people who are arrogant and promoting people who are humble. And finally, she concludes by praising God that he is true to his promises. That the things that God promises he will do, he does and has done. So let's look at that for a few minutes together. As I said before, the first thing that Mary does in this song is she praises God for what he has done for her in spite of her uh, lowliness. Let's look at verses 46 through 49. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Now what I like about this song is there's not a whole lot in scripture that really tells us a lot about who Mary was. But this song tells us a tremendous amount about her. Uh, It's a song that is rooted in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, in this entire song, excuse me, 
you'll find about uh, 12 allusions to different Old Testament uh, texts and passages, including a song that was written in uh, 1 Samuel by a woman named Hannah, who was in a similar position as Mary. Uh, Mary, we learn really early on, just from looking at it, that, that she has obviously really studied the scriptures, and she treasures them. And when she writes this song, she's able to take what she's learned about the scriptures and pull it out and, and put it into a song uh, like this. You also see about Mary, as you just start first reading this, that she is obviously a very humble, a very trusting person. She, she just seems to be so comfortable in her own skin. And there's a real genuineness about this song. There's a real spirit of gratitude that is in this song. You can see that this is a person who just feels absolutely undeserving for everything that God has blessed her with and and done in her life. And as a result of that, what she wants through this song and through this life is for God to be recognized for how great and wonderful he is. And so like a telescope, what she hopes is that her very soul itself would point to the greatness of God, that people would see that through her. And so she says, my soul magnifies the Lord with praise. She says, my my spirit rejoices in him because he's looked down and, and he's seen how humble I am. He's seen how ordinary I am. He, he's seen that I'm, I'm just a normal, unimportant woman who lives in, in poverty. And yet, thanks to what he's done, all generations will know that I'm blessed. And that's true, right? I mean, we sit here generations and generations and generations later realizing that and thinking about that this morning. That blew her mind. She says, for God has done great things for me and holy is his name. Get a little sense for Mary's heart here, don't you? It's pretty easy, even in this this first section of the song, to, to just get a sense for why God would have chosen Mary of all people to be the mother of Christ. She seems to be a wonderful, godly, humble woman who is an example for all of us. But even with these kinds of things in mind, we should also acknowledge this morning that it is possible to take a higher view of Mary than the scriptures actually allow for. Uh, There are some who have uh, elevated Mary in many ways, almost literally, to almost a superhuman status where they would see her as being like a person who had no sin, that she was born uh, without sin. Uh, Some view her as a a sort of a queen of heaven and, and that if we're going through struggles and difficulty, she's a person that we can pray to in our time of need. But it's important to realize that the Bible uh, does not encourage this thinking. And I don't think that Mary, Mary herself in any way would uh, encourage this thinking. And in fact, in contrast to how highly over uh, history people have uh, viewed and elevated the position of Mary, it's, it's really important to see what a lowly posture she herself takes. And in fact, there is one specific way that she describes God in this song that is very telling and very important to see. And it's right here in verse 47. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
Mary thought of God as her savior. And for those who would suggest that Mary was sinless, I think we see here that she would have rejected that idea because only sinners need a savior. And Mary had obviously tasted the grace of God in her life. And she must have known that she needed that grace, that she required herself a savior. And, And that's how she thought of God. That's how she knew him. He was just naturally her savior. And as a result of that saving work that he had done in her life, she just wanted to magnify him from the deepest parts of her soul. So after praising God for all that he's done for for her, who she considers to just be a, a lowly, humble person, Mary then moves on to kind of spread this out a little bit. And what she does is she praises God for showing mercy to anyone who would humble themselves and fear him. Look at verse 50. She writes, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Uh, This is like Mary's proclamation to the world. First of all, she tells us what God has done in her life. Then she says, God can do the same thing in your life too. She says his mercy is for anyone who would fear him. Anyone who would respect him. Anyone who would call on his name. And I, I believe that just as Mary believed that God was her savior, she wants everyone else to know him that way. As well. And so let me ask you this this morning. Can you call the Lord your Savior? Can you call God your Savior? Is that word, that one word, Savior, something that comes to mind for you when you think of the Lord? Does it roll naturally out of your mouth? You see, it's one thing to believe in God, it's one thing to love God and and to think that he's great, and that he's wonderful, and to think that he's good. But I think we've got to recognize that it's an entirely different thing to know him as your Savior. It's kind of like this. It's one thing to know a fireman, and to really respect him, and even love him, and thinks that the work that he does is wonderful, and important, and good. But it's another thing entirely to be trapped in a burning building and to have that fireman crash in through a window and pull you out from the flames just in time. You see, then that fireman has become your savior. Savior is a deeply, deeply personal, intimate word. And it implies a very deep and personal need for help, for rescue, for liberation. You know, I've, I've known many uh, people who uh, believe in God and think really good thoughts about him. I mean, they speak very highly of him. But unlike Mary, they just haven't yet seen their need for him to be their savior. And generally, it's because they believe that they are pretty good people who are living pretty good lives, and that even though they have flaws and imperfections that they will happily admit to, they're not trying to hide, still, they consider themselves to be good enough, righteous enough, acceptable enough to God, and they believe that in light of that, in the end, just as they are, Everything will be fine between them and God 
that God will accept them in part because there's a lot of other worse sinners who are out there than they are. They've tried to do some good things in their life and also in part because they believe that God is good and wonderful and loving and all of those things. But tragically, and this is so important, the Bible teaches that a person who does not sense their need for a Savior will never find one. But that person will never be saved. I've met other people who don't see God as their Savior for a different reason. Those people are on the other side. They, they don't believe that they themselves are savable. And what's interesting is these people will talk about how great and wonderful and good God is as well. They just don't believe that those good, great, wonderful qualities about God could ever be applied to themselves. I've made too many mistakes, they'll say. And they believe that there must be a certain amount of uh, sinful works that they could do that would cancel out the gift of God's grace and mercy. No one can possibly understand how I've destroyed my life, they might say, really believing that there isn't a single other person in history who's, who's committed those same mistakes and, and done those same kinds of sins. How can God forgive me if I can never forgive myself, they'll say. As if the the death of Christ has less significance and importance than their own sin. And tragically, again, what the Bible teaches is that a person who does not believe that it's possible for them to be saved will never find Jesus as their Savior. And so what you have is you have some people who do not know God as their Savior because they have no real, true conviction of their own sin. And you have other people who do not know God as their Savior because they have nothing but conviction of their sin. No sense of of hope in His grace and for His forgiveness. But God, Mary says here, in His eternal kindness, longs to be the Savior of everyone. Everyone. In fact, God uses those very words. And in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4, we are told very explicitly that God desires all people to be saved. God desires all people, everyone, to be saved. And if you are sitting here in this room this morning, I really hope you know this. I really hope you believe this. And it all begins, I think we find from Mary's song, with humility. It is recognizing that just as Mary herself needed rescue from her sin, that we need rescue from ours. I want to take you to another place in the Bible just for a moment. If you could flip over to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We won't be there for long. You can maybe keep your finger in Luke chapter 1. But I just want you to look at the first sentence in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. These are dreadful words. 
what this teaches us is that every single person we are told has trespassed and sinned against God and that it is a very, very big deal that as a result, every sinner is as good as dead. Every sinner is in a perilous position without the saving grace of God. But thankfully... God offers something to sinners. And Paul goes on to describe this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And and I want you just to read these words. And I hope within you rejoice in these words. The Apostle Paul writes, In spite of that, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Bible teaches that that grace is offered to everyone. And you see, Christmas, uh, the, the incarnation is Jesus himself stepping into our world to rescue us from our sin. He's like that fireman who crashes into our burning lives to to free us from the flames. And and we're told that he would die in our place. That he would offer through his own sacrifice on the cross to purchase our freedom from sin with his very body. And so Christ offers to trade each one their guilt for his grace. The condemnation they're facing for his grace freedom, the death we deserve for the life that he offers. And what we find declared again and again throughout the scripture is that there is no sinner who cannot be saved from their sin if they desire it. And if they would humble themselves and receive it as Mary did. And so I'll ask you that first question again. Can you call God, your Savior? That is the most important question you will ever answer in your lifetime. And our church exists, in fact, to help people answer that question. It it helped me when I was very young to answer that question. Uh, I just want to note something really quick that maybe we don't say uh, quite enough. And that is, if, if that's something that you're struggling with, something that you're not sure about, you're considering, you have questions, you have heard some things that you aren't sure if they're true or not, we would welcome you to talk to any of us at any time. I know I absolutely feel that way. The staff feels that way. The elders feel that way. The community group leaders feel that way. I would even say that all of our members feel that way. We would love to have a conversation with you about that some time if that was if that would be helpful to you in in any way. Well, at this point, uh, Mary's song begins to switch gears a little bit. She's started by talking about all the 
the good things that God has done for her in her life in spite of her lowliness. Then she says that, that, that uh, God wants to do good things in everyone's life, that his mercy is available to anyone who would fear him. Now what she's going to do is she's going to extend it even a little bit further and talk about how God is going to do big things in the world uh, eventually. And she praises him for these things that she sees coming in the future thanks to the fact that she's been given a son who would be the Messiah, who would die for sin, who would one day uh, change the world. And specifically what she's talking about is that God will one day demote those who are arrogant and he will lift up those who are humble. So take uh, a look again at uh, the book of Luke. If you can flip back to chapter 1, we find this in verses 51 through 53. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now what you find in this section of her song is like a great reversal of the social order in the world. One day, in the future, she says, God is going to bring justice. And he's going to bring justice both to those who have abused wealth and status and power. And he's going to bring justice to those who have been abused by those people's wealth and status and power. And so what you've got here is this great kind of social turnover of things where those who are on the top are going to be demoted to the bottom. And those who are on the bottom are going to be promoted to the top. And Mary says all of this eventually will come thanks to the birth and life and death of Christ. And when you think about it, even the birth and death and life of Christ illustrates this very point, this this turnover, this things being made upside down. I mean, think for just a second about the wealth and the status and the power that goes along with being the Son of God, right? It'd be hard to find any, any more mouth. We can't even comprehend the wealth. We can't comprehend the, the status and the power that Jesus himself has. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He's the one who created all of what we see around us this morning, especially this, this beautiful sight as we look out these windows. We're, we're told that even right now, not only did he create these things, but he sustains everything. And so even the, the air that we breathe into our lungs and, and the fact that we can inhale and exhale, God is even presently uh, sustaining our bodies. And yet we are told That when Jesus came into the world, he took his crowns off of his head, all of these royal diadems that the scripture says he wears, and he set them down. And the royal, kingly, stately robes he took off and set aside. And the book of Philippians tells us that he, he set aside and he emptied himself of all of the rights and privileges that go along with being the son of God and inconceivably, he became a person born to this humble, poor, unknown woman named Mary, a teenager, in a dirty barn. He was laid down only in a manger. 
And he would continue in the same vein all of his life. He would continue to be poor. He would be a person with no home. He was essentially a homeless person who eventually wound up being crucified for crimes he did not commit and dying on the cross. There is no greater demotion that could possibly be imagined from the Son of God, the ruler of the universe, becoming a man who is crucified on a cross. And yet, what the book of Philippians tells us is that what God did as a result of that is he reversed the switch, right? That in the end, he exalted Jesus to the name above every other name. Do you see the reversal? You see, I think this is a, a good reminder for all of us that, that just as Christ was seeking to embrace this sense of humility, and just as Mary especially did too, even though she should have had a swelled head because the king of the universe was going to come through her, we ought to do the same thing as well. We ought to consider ourselves, as she did, as, as humble as unworthy of anything that God would give us or do for us. We ought to not embrace this idea of of climbing the ladder to the top, which is so common in our culture. Now, the Bible teaches that things like wealth and status and power are not in and of themselves wrong things. There's there's nothing in scripture that is going to tell you not to be rich or not to be a person who's considered important or powerful. But the scripture does tell us very clearly that we are never to put our identity in those things. We're never to place our hope there. We're never to find our rest there. We're not to put our strength there either. Instead, what we are to do is to humbly receive those things that God gives us, give him praise and credit for those things, and then use those things generously for the benefit of other people. And so whatever wealth that you have in life, whatever influence that you have in life, whatever kind of social clout or leverage that you have in life, no matter how big it is and no matter how small it is, the Bible would consider that to be a stewardship that you would use on the behalf of other people who do not have those things. In other words, Christians are meant to live with an attitude that's down here rather than up here. And Mary models that. And Christ models that. And so we must guard against proud thoughts in our hearts, she writes here. And guard against seeking for our own lives to be like kings and queens who sit on our thrones, but instead to consider ourselves like Mary, people of humble estate, ordinary people who praise God because he's given us so very much, especially in Christ, his son. And what Mary does, and and remember, Mary was on the bottom, right? I mean, Mary was was at the fringes of society. What she does is, is she looks forward to everything flipping upside down, She looks forward to that day when God will reject the proud and where he will exalt the humble, when all things will be made new. And and she assumes that we would look forward to that day as well. Well, finally, the last thing that Mary does is she praises God for one more thing. 
She praises him that he has fulfilled his promises throughout history. Look at verse 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now Mary specifically points to uh, Abraham And uh, Abraham was the man who actually started the nation of Israel. God chose uh, Abraham and called him out of the comfort of his own nation to start a new nation. This happened about 2,000 years before Mary was born. And when God called him out, what he did is he made a covenant with Abraham, which was like an unconditional, unbreakable promise. And in this particular covenant, there was nothing that God required from Abraham. He just said, I'm going to do something great for you. And he took Abraham outside underneath the stars at night. He told him to look up and count the stars, which obviously Abraham could not do. And God said, that is how your offspring are going to be. They're going to be that multiple as the stars in the sky. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to give you the best land. And in the rest of uh, the Old Testament is, is, is that being worked out, God fulfilling that promise. But God says to Abraham one more thing that's very important. God said, says these words, he said to Abraham, because of what I will do for you, everyone on earth will be blessed. Everyone will be blessed. When I was uh, about 10 years old, I, uh, I saw a movie that uh, I thought was just incredible. It was called Flight of the Navigator. It was a Disney movie. Maybe you've heard of it before, or or maybe you saw it. I don't recommend renting it. I was 10 at the time. so. Um, And I really don't remember much of the detail about that movie, except that it was also about another 10-year-old boy uh, like me. And uh, this 10-year-old boy gets chosen by this spaceship that kind of has a consciousness. I think we have it on the screen behind me. Yeah, there it is right there. That's the spaceship. Not bad for like 1984, I I don't think. But uh, anyway, this spaceship chooses this little boy to be its like the driver of the spaceship. And and they go on all of these adventures together. And they do all of these very important things. And again, I, I can't remember really anything about the plot. But I do remember how I felt when I watched this movie. Jealous. I was so jealous. I wanted to be the one who was picked like that. I wanted to be the one who would get to go up in a spaceship and do all of these important things, to be somebody who was exceptional and and chosen to be a part of such a good and, and great story. And that's what I think is going on for Mary at the end. I think that what Mary realizes is that she is a part of this great story. That those promises that God made to Abraham all those years ago, they they involve her and her yet-to-be-born child. She gets to be, she celebrates a part of God's unfolding plan throughout history. And I think she looks at God and she just says, why me? Why would you ever choose me? And how do I get to be a part of this thing that you did for Abraham all those years ago? Why me? And that's the attitude that every child of God should have. Why me? Why do I have Christ as my Savior? 
Why do I get to know you and serve you and live for you and enjoy you? Why me? How could I possibly be picked for such a great and wonderful story? And to think that that story is not over yet. To think that that story continues. Well, all of us should praise God for the same things that Mary did. If we call him our Savior, we ought to thank him for all that he's done in spite of our humility and our lowliness. We ought to just praise him that his mercy is available for anyone who would fear him, anyone who would want it and desire it. We ought to thank God that that he will one day demote the arrogant and promote the humble just as he himself once demoted himself and now he has been promoted himself. And we ought to thank God that he keeps his promises even 2,000 years later. And what that ought to create in us, I, I think, is that same thing that it created within Mary. We ought to want to sing with all of our hearts, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that that would be true, that you would give each one of us who are in this room that great gift of humility so that we might stand before you in awe as Mary did, that we might know you as our Savior and believe with all of our hearts that we needed saving and you came for us. We pray that we would uh, constantly uh, consider ourselves uh, to be given life and, and to be given all that we could ever begin to imagine and more thanks to what your son has done for us. Please help us to be people of joy, people who magnify you and who desire to make your greatness known. And we thank you that when you could have abandoned us, you did not. We thank you that you sent your son instead to give his very life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.